Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Maybe you're listening via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton. And I'm Fum. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> How are you, Fum? Good. How are you this morning? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Hey, shall we launch into it? Yes, let's do it. We've got a full show coming up for you. We do. Hey, thanks very much. First up to Tim Thorpe and uh, for his wonderful Vital Bits, six hours of Vital Bits power this weekend. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, thanks for the Mother's Day bracket there too, Tim. Very lovely. And uh, Andrew, of course, for Soulful Bits and Steph for Things to Do Today. You can catch Tim next weekend and uh, Andrew on Sunday for more Vital Bits fun. On today's program, uh, we've got a bunch of stuff coming up, starting up with a guest that you've organised, Fum. Yeah, we're going to speak with Matt Crawley from the Bellarine Catchment Network. And I've had a closer look at all the things that they're doing, and it is a lot, and they're a pretty amazing organisation. So we'll be chatting with him about all the beautiful things they do for the environment down on the Bellarine. Excellent. We're then going to be speaking with uh, Dr. Elodie Campras. We spoke with Elodie a couple of weeks ago about some great work that she's leading at Deakin University, looking at all of those, researching all those questions that we've all been wondering about the spider crabs and, you know, this natural phenomenon that happens at this time of the year every year, although maybe not last year. We, we'll never find out. But uh, some great work that they're doing there. And uh Elodie's going to be joining us to give us the latest on what's happening with the spider crabs. Yeah, I'm very excited about this project. Yeah, and and whether they're here yet. Yes. Well, I mean, we had a we had a phone call last week from someone suggesting that they were near Swan Bay on the ocean side of Swan Bay. Right. Yes, that's right. Yeah. But have they been seen or have they not been seen yet? Stay tuned to find out. That'll be really good. We're then going to be speaking with Neil Blake, our baykeeper, uh, who we do love so very much and is part of the Marinara team. Neil's going to be talking about coastal erosion policy and some priorities that are made um, or that are given behind the decision-making processes related to coastal erosion. So we're talking about, well, I guess a bunch of factors, but including sea level rise and um, what the priority order is for particular things that are taken into account when when those decision-makers sort of think about coastal erosion and what should be prioritised. So a couple of things that Neil's going to be talking about include infrastructure, uh, cultural values and threatened natural habitat. So which order are those prioritised? This is a pop quiz. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know either, Farm. <laughs> we will find out. Sorry, right, I'm not putting you on the spot. We will find out from yeah. Neil. And then some very exciting stuff that you've been doing, Farm. Yeah, this we're, is great. Um, uh, I want to update everyone about the Community Rapid Response Teams project that's run by the Eco Centre at the moment, where we are in right smack bang in the middle of training up the team leaders for rapid response teams that can respond well rapidly to Northern Pacific Sea Star mass aggregation outbreaks that we see in the winter on the beaches. So stay tuned for that, and I'll update you. Fantastic! So big show. 
Should we have a look at the weather first? Oh, yes. So, Weather Girl Farm. Melbourne, top of 16 degrees and cloudy. We've got a medium chance of showers about the Dandenongs and the southeast suburbs and a slight chance of showers elsewhere. Winds are westerly, 15 to 20 k's an hour, tending southwesterly in the middle of the day and then becoming light in the late afternoon. Uh, For tides, at Port Phillip Heads, the low tide will be at 10.15 a.m. today and the next high tide at 5 past 5 p.m. If you want to go north of the bay, then Bomoris has the next low tide at 1.42 p.m. and the next high at 8.26 p.m. Excellent. We've actually got time for news for a change. We're usually rushing (laughs) particularly through this first part of the show. Look, it's still early in the show. We'll probably be rushing by the end (laughs) of it. (laughs) But uh, a couple of of interesting things that have happened this week. Do you want to lead off with yours? Yeah, actually, yes. Um, So on the 4th of May, um, we finally found out some answers around uh, Flinders Pier. Uh, In the Victorian budget, it was released that $1.5 million has been allocated to begin the planning and the restoration works on Flinders Pier. And this follows a long campaign by by the community group Safe Flinders Pier on the Mornington Peninsula after it was announced that the wooden part of the pier would be demolished. Um, and since the campaign first began about a year ago, uh, the pier itself has been recommended by Heritage Victoria for listing on the Heritage Register. And currently that recommendation is out to community consultation until May 16th and they will be making a final decision on that in June. So if you want to get a voice in till May 16th, they are open for consultation. Yeah, great. So that's only another week? Uh, Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, good news that that money has been allocated. So, yeah. Yeah, great. Uh, I've got a couple of things. One, we – with apologies to listener of this show, Casey Lee. Thank you, uh, Casey, for getting in touch with us um, via our Facebook page, our group, um, letting us know about an event which has already happened, but I just wanted to draw some attention to it because it, um, not so much the event itself, but this really interesting piece of research that's being done um, relating to globally significant bryozoan biogenic reefs in Western Port Bay. Have you heard about this one? Oof, that's a mouthful. Can you say that again? (laughs) (laughs) Globally significant bryozoan biogenic reefs in western port bay gotcha so so picture these are sort of um ancient um skeletons of bryozoan um so in invertebrate colonies a little bit like coral in terms of how they look yeah tiny tiny yeah um so there's been all this research done actually having a look at um uh some old nautical charts that uh, for a long time have referred to this small patch in western port known as the corals again because of the um physical similarities yeah the to, appearance of to, bryozoans to coral reefs yeah exactly yeah. um but uh occasional uh, bryozoan skeletons resembling corals pulled up on fishing lines and anchors and um so some scientists have recently been doing some camera transects and uh, also using high resolution multi-beam echo sounding uncovering these secrets of what are known to be fascinating bryozoan biogenic reefs so they're quite significant in terms of Amazing. Are yeah. they still there or are they or is that just the remnants of them? Uh they are still there. Um I'm guessing maybe in in lesser um area than, yeah. than they used to be because of again because of uh, all of those uh, human impacts but uh yeah some really interesting work led by dr travis dutka from la trobe university so just wanted to put a shout out there to casey for letting us know about this uh and uh yeah we'll we'll line up Travis to, to talk about yeah this, that'll be absolutely amazing I, I, I love it when um, you know old written records prove something that that used to be there and it gives you sort of like you know an avenue for for more discovery and, and inquiry yeah oh, it's really fascinating um, another one uh, we'll 
that I'll just mention briefly, thanks to Elizabeth McCarthy, Talks producer extraordinaire here at Triple R, sent our way from Sea Shepherd. This is a really good news story. Um, <laughs> you, you're always going to get grabbed by the headline: over fifty thousand endangered turtle hatchlings released into the ocean in Papua New Guinea's conflict islands. I just love that already. Yeah. <laughs> It's basically the entire news article yeah, summed up in one sentence. Pretty much. <laughs> like, who doesn't love a story about oh, 50,000 um, turtle hatchlings? So this is some collaborative work done um, between Sea Shepherd and the Conflict Islands Conservation Initiative. Um, and uh, th- they basically funded, so Sea Shepherd funded uh, the this collaborative work where all of these tiny little baby uh, turtle hatchlings have been um, released. So during the 2021-22 turtle nesting season. Uh, as I mentioned, Sea Shepherds provided funding for recruitment of an additional nine trainee conservation rangers from the local community to support the existing team of rangers. Um, they patrolled the atoll's 21 islands to monitor and protect marine turtle populations from climate change, environmental and other human-made threats. So how cool is that? That's amazing. And it's really lovely to hear these kinds of stories because, you know, a lot of my friends are, are, you know, big Sea Shepherd supporters, volunteers and donors as well. And it's, it's beautiful to see where that money goes and how they use it. Uh, for these kinds of causes. I love that. Exactly. Very, very good point there, Fum. Mm. All right, it's 10 past nine, nearly 11 past nine. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 Triple. And online on Skype, we've got Matt Crawley from the Bellarine Catchment Network. Um, Matt is the program manager of BCN and he's worked there for the past 13 years and across four catchment regions, including the Mallee, North Central, Goldman Broken and Karangamite Catchment Management Authority um, regions. His experience in working with communities to achieve biodiversity protection and enhancement is actually very well known on the Bellarine and the Geelong regions. He's a bit of a legend there. He has a team of six very passionate professionals for BCN and um, he's also represented on a number of regional environment committees and is part of the current Leaders for Geelong cohort. Great intro for a great person. Hi Matt, how are you doing? Hi, very well and thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. I can't believe we haven't had you guys on before because you're doing such amazing, amazing work with the Bellarine Catchment um, network. Can you tell us a little bit about what you guys do? Because the only thing I know is that you do a lot. Yeah, thanks. Um, it's hard to know where to start, really, because I think <laughs> you captured it pretty well. We do do a lot, and I guess it's because of our um, the legacy we've built up over now. Well, I think we're pushing 25 years. So we started in the in the late 90s as under a different name, which was the Swan Bay Integrated Catchment Management Committee. That obviously too, took too long to uh, say, so we shortened it to the Bellarine <laughs> Catchment Network. Very and smart. The time. Um, and initially it was around um, Swan Bay where we had, um, back in the late 90s, it was in decline, nutrient and sediment loads, um, grazing of the coastal salt marsh, and bit by bit um, through local land managers and community groups came together to address the concerns there. And really since then we've just grown um, to cover the whole of the Bellarine area incorporate programs across coast care, land care um, and numerous other programs which have grown and evolved from there as, as our programs also evolved. 
Yeah, wonderful. And look, you, you, you run a lot of programs that have to do with all the coastal environments. But the one that I, I want to I want to lift out a few and the one of your flagship projects at the moment is Caring for Our Bays, which is a litter program, a litter project that integrates engagement, infrastructure and enforcement activities across communities, business and government in the catchments leading into Corio Bay. And you also connect groups together to reduce litter and improve the water quality in Corio Bay. Um, yeah. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that, Matt? Because I always see these really nice, colorful posters with all the marine animals from the local area. And you guys are um, yeah, doing a great job at that. Um, where are you at with that? Yeah, thanks again, Farm. It's been now a program that's probably um, pushing into its sixth year. And it really started as a litter hotspot program, addressing some really obvious um, spots in the Geelong region, but also on the Ballerine. And I guess uh, looking at where the litter was coming from, um, involving the local community through the schools and community environment groups and other groups, and starting um, to address those those issues. But since then, it's really evolved to be a lot of other elements. Um, we've got the heroes part of it, which we're up to now, I think about 13 or 14 different hero species. And that's just been essential in capturing the um, community's uh, interest and um, connection to the different species that inhabit Port Phillip Bay and uh, species you know that many of the listeners will be familiar with such as the Baranun dolphin, uh, Australasian gannet, uh, fiddler ray etc have all become our local heroes and we see them all up and down the coastline and it also goes across different land manager boundaries and so that's been really important for that consistent message everywhere from eastern beach um, right, right the way through areas like clifton springs port arlington etc um, have incorporated this same program and it just makes that message a lot easier for a community to understand that you know whilst you might not be lucky enough to be walking along and seeing you know seeing some of these special animals that they're there all the time and it just makes that connection that little bit easier for for us all to understand including myself really hi matt it's uh hi matt it's bron um thank you for all of the amazing work that you and your team do i was just wondering uh in terms of Corio bay we, ha- we haven't really thumbs right we haven't talked much about Corio bay over the years and i'm interested in from your perspective some of the major changes that you've seen in Corio bay it it you know, at one point in time didn't have a great reputation, I guess, because of the uh, I, even the presence of industry around that particular area. Um, what have been some of the major changes that you've seen? Hi, Bron. Yeah, thanks. It's really been actually fascinating, really challenging and interesting and re- rewarding at the end because I guess um, that part of the bay was, I don't know, it's probably not fair to say overlooked, but certainly didn't have as much uh, effort and input from you know the environment world, I guess. And we started to um, work in that area when we started with the Caring for Our Bays program, really around litter. But it's just evolved into so many other elements now and working with the community in, in sort of Norlane and uh, North Geelong, Corio areas, um, around places like Limeburners Lagoon, Morpeniel Park and places like that. And I, I guess... A lot of people weren't really aware of those values that were in that area. And just bit by bit, we've been able to make those connections, run summer by the sea programs, run regular 
you know, activities, all the usual things, the beachcombs, the rock pool rambles, flora and fauna walks and talks. But bit by bit, that interest is growing. And I, I think the value of that is um, in that part of the world, the, the community either weren't aware or didn't have the opportunity to understand what those values were. And that's just grown exponentially year on year. And now there's a really engaged um, community. And we're linking in with local swims in the area, uh, local festivals and events, and um, really getting that message and love out there. And a great example is the Paco Festa, which is for, you know, for people that know Geelong, packing in streets well known and loved. And there's this great multicultural festival um, along Packington Street and, and all the bins along in the area have the um, the hero species in different languages. So I think we've got about nine different languages where the different species um, are represented. And it's just fantastic at that festival. And really, any time I walk or drive along there, it just fills me with so much pride to see the species we all know and love represented in the community and just making people just think that little bit more about, you know, their behaviour um, around litter, I guess. Yeah, I actually, I'm in Coburg, Matt, but I have bin stickers from you guys. <laughs> I've got bin stickers on my bins uh, with some beautiful animals and uh, a tagline that says, you know, think about the bay, really. Uh, what yep. I also really like, you're saying, um, you know, you're speaking of multiculturalism and one of your uh, hero species, a seal, was actually translated in Wadawurrung. Um, you guys seem to be working quite closely with uh, local First Nations there. Um, what's that been like? Oh, once again, just amazing and so rewarding. And um, we started with the, the seal, um, with the Australasian fur seal, and now we're up to five different species that have been translated into language, uh, also with appropriate cultural stories built into um, the, the hero species. So that, that started with that program, which was part of our Bay Country video and app, which you can find on our website. Um, and it's just really been a such a rewarding partnership that we've developed and um, continues to build uh, all the time. In fact, we had a um, some of my colleagues, Rebecca St. Ledger and Naomi Wells, were doing a um, an event. I think it was on Thursday or Friday uh, on the Port Phillip ferries, and they had uh, Wadawurrung uh, represented along with um, a number of other um, people. And I think there was two or three primary schools that were part of that day. And the the feedback from the day was just fantastic to have all those. Um, elements coming together in interpreting the Port Phillip Bay was just wonderful. So continuing to develop that is an absolute priority for us and really a wonderful opportunity as well. Yeah, it's re it's a really great initiative, and uh, we will put a uh, you the YouTube video of the Bay Country app and video on our on our Facebook page as well. Um, Matt, just quickly before we wrap up, um, there's a few new coast care groups in your area. Yeah. There is, and that's another exciting thing, I guess. We're so lucky that the community down here just continues to be more engaged, and what happens from that, new groups pop up. Sometimes there's a new uh, coastal foreshore reserve, and that needs a bit of extra love to work with the land managers to assist um, ones like City of Greater Geelong or it might be Parks or the Borough of Queenscliff. So our role is to help to develop those, and some of the new ones we've had over the last few years, I guess, has been uh, – uh, the Borough Coast Carers down in the Borough of Queenscliff, the smallest municipality in the state. Uh, and they work on sites along the coast of Moona Woodland, a um, place called the Narrows, uh, Lover's Walk, and also Ripview area, which looks out over the, over the rip. Um, we've also got the Clifton Springs Curlewis Coast Care Group, which is being developing at the moment as well, and really 
put that um, love back into that part of the coast also. And uh, working with them, they're looking to get uh, really up and running in the second half of this year and have regular, you know, working bees and community um, citizen science activities during the year as well. And that just builds on to all the other groups that have existed for, you know, so long, groups like Ocean Grove Coast Care, Friends of the Ballerine Rail Trail, Friends of Edwards Point. I could go on and on. I want to mention them all, but that'll take too long. But there's around 32 community groups and organisations that are part of BCN and really we all we all just work together we put boundaries and lines on maps um, to one side and we come together to work collectively for you know for the betterment of the environment on the ballerine and it's proven time and time again that that's a better way to go about it. Yeah I agree I mean you know connecting everybody and working together towards you know common goal uh, for the environment is is definitely the way to go. Thank you, Matt. Um, that was really great. How can people get in touch with you, for example, if they want to join one of the Coast Care groups in the area? Yeah, I suppose uh, what we do is filter a lot of inquiries. People will come, you know, come move into the areas. A lot of people move into the Ballerina, as I'm sure you're aware, and often they don't know how to connect to that local group. Um, so they come to us first and we then work out what their interest is and where they live and then connect them through. So Naomi Wells is our uh, communications and education um, coordinator and uh, she's contactable through, again, probably the best is our website where you'll find our socials and also um, the details of the staff members and then we can put um, people in contact that way through their most appropriate group and whether it's with um, the coastal sort of areas with uh, Rebecca St. Ledger runs that program or the biodiversity Lachlan Forbes or Sophie Small with the Landcare program there's a team that can connect the community to their local areas and you know make those connections even stronger. Wonderful and we will be putting a, a link on our Facebook page um, to your website. Thanks Matt that was really wonderful and uh, yeah we'll, we'll have you on again in a few months time and see what other sort of programs you're running because I said before you you guys are doing so much there's so much more to highlight um so that was matt crawley the program manager of the bellerine catchment network see you later matt thanks for coming thanks so much appreciate it oh where are the giant spider crabs they've only arrived in drips and drabs they were due in june on the strawberry moon by the thousands appearing by the pier Let's hope this year isn't fallow. May they soon festoon every bayside shallow. Next full moon high to our shores and coves. Let lepto mithrax gymadii come scuttling in droves. Mal Webb and Kylie Morrigan there, who composed and recorded that little tiny piece. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful, Farm? It sounds like the start of a children's cartoon about spider crabs on TV. I love it. I love a little pizzicato um, bit that Kylie does on the violin. That it kind of you know the scuttling, yes, yeah. the scuttling of the crabs. <laughs> so we thought we might play that um, each time we catch up with um, Elodie Compress from Deakin University to talk about uh, the spider crabs and where they're at. We caught up with Elodie a couple of weeks ago here on Marinara. Good, we have her on the phone. Uh, good morning, Elodie. Hi, thank you for having me again. Great to have you back, and um, thanks to Fum for uh, for arranging this for us this morning. Uh-huh, no worries. Yeah. We always want to know what's happening with the sky- spider crabs. So what's happening <laughs> with the spider crabs, Elodie? Tell us. All right. So, yeah, obviously we're all waiting. Um, yeah, very excited that uh, spider crabs aggregations are around the corner now. So really any time in May or June, 
Um, I've been told, so there have been a few sightings of quite decent piles around Blairgory. Uh, it's kind of on and off, nothing sort of settled just yet, but yeah, now it's the waiting game. What's a decent pile? Are we talking a hundred or a thousand? Uh, I haven't had, yeah, I, I haven't been told the details, just that there were a lot. Ah, so great. What does that mean? <laughs> okay, so a pile is a lot. A pile yeah. is, some, is somewhere between 100 and 1,000 maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Elodie, for people who are listening and missed when we caught up with you a couple of weeks ago, can you give us a quick snapshot of the work that you're doing, the citizen science projects that you're doing and, um, and uh, how people can get involved if they, if they want to? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, we've created Spider Club Watch at Deakin, um, and that's a citizen, citizen science program for um, people to uh, report sightings of spider crabs. So it doesn't really matter if they see one spider crab or an actual aggregation. We really would like them to uh, go on iNaturalist on the Spider Crab Watch program and log sightings. But we're also interested in uh, people logging sightings when they don't see spider crabs so we can sort of figure out because if we only get sightings for when they're found, we only have half of the story in terms of figuring out what kind of habitat they like and don't like and what kind of times of year they're seen and not seen. So, yeah, people that go um, use the bay, use the water, uh, can stay on the lookout for spider crabs and tell us through uh, Spider Crab Watch what they've come across. Yeah, wonderful. And that's that's a good thing you are emphasizing there, LOD, uh, that in science, zero is also a very important result. So, yes, keep an eye on that for sure. And, LOD, um, I saw something on the Facebook page. Somebody wrote you a letter. Yes, David Attenborough. So that's very exciting. That is amazing. Um. What, what was the letter from? Uh, well, I'll let LOD uh, tell that story. Uh, so Sir David Attenborough got in touch. Yeah, so um, I knew that he'd obviously taken interest in spider crabs since he featured the spider crabs in BBC Blue Planet too. So, uh, and a few members in the community had written to him in the past, kind of telling him what um, the spider crabs were up to. So I uh, did send him an update as well, saying that we were starting this research and. Uh, yeah, he very kindly responded and uh, saying he was excited about yeah having um, someone work on and doing research on spider crabs and yeah, thanking me for the work. So that's probably the highlight of my career now. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, can you just like retire happily now? <laughs> no, not yeah, yet. No, yeah, no, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really wonderful. And, and I really love that he still handwrites every letter as well. I know, right? That's amazing. I, I wasn't quite expecting that, but yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a lovely surprise. Well, there we go. Now the spider crabs will have to turn up, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so Be much for, uh, for giving us an update. That was Dr. Elodie Compras from Deakin University regarding uh, spider, crab wa- spider Crab Watch. And um, yeah, we'll see you again soon, Elodie, to uh, give us some more updates in a few weeks' yeah. time. We'll- Can I just say one more thing for like 20 seconds? Sure. Um, so on Spider Crab Watch, the program on iNaturalist, we've put a link for people to sign up for updates. So when you get to the program, scroll down, it's just under the map. So people who are interested in the research can, si- can sign up for the latest update delivered to their inbox. 
Great. Thanks, Elodie. And we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page as well. And uh, awesome. if it, and if it's okay with you, we might check in with you, you know, every week or two, depending on your availability or someone in your team to keep tabs on this because we know our listeners are super keen to, to monitor this, particularly because the spider crabs didn't turn up last year or, or not in the way that they were expected to. So uh, if that's all right with you, uh, I know our listeners yeah. are going to be very keen to follow this one through. Absolutely. Happy to come back anytime. Fantastic. Thanks, Elodie. Have a great Sunday. Thanks. Okay, we'll catch you Thank soon. Thank you, you too. Okay, bye. bye for now. Elodie, Dr. Elodie Compress there from Deakin University. Neil Blake, good morning. Good morning, Bron and Fum. Great to have you here with us. And panel beater over there. <laughs> <laughs> Doing a great job. Now, um, mentioned before we played uh, the seabirds that you're here today to talk to us about decision-making processes on how we deal with coastal erosion. Yeah, well, uh, the the time has come, you know, where, <laughs> where certainly sea level rises rises actually taking its toll on uh, various coasts around the place. And uh, yeah, I've had a particular interest though in uh, Point Nepean National Park, um, and been watching that with interest since about 2012, I guess. And there's particularly down there at Observatory Point, there's been ongoing erosion there, uh, and so that's. Uh, the question is what to do about it, you know. So um, uh, I sort of looked at various policies and, for example, the Point and the Pean strategic plan uh, refers to a uh, maintenance plan for coastal erosion and uh, any directions around dealing with that generally prioritise infrastructure areas or areas where there is some sort of cultural uh, importance or uh, values. Uh, uh, compared to the biodiversity, which sort of is down the down the list, so uh, uh, that which the vast areas of our coasts around around the country uh, are just natural and don't necessarily have infrastructure or property uh, values associated with them, so um, that that presents a challenge. So uh, uh, um, I looked at the uh, Victorian uh, it's a Natural Environment Climate Change Adaptation Plan for 2022 to 2026. And that just to see sort of if that had any sort of guidance on coastal erosion there. And it is included, uh, but uh, it's uh, still not really uh, any clear pro approach as to how we might address the ongoing uh, loss of biodiversity on particularly June, June ecosystems. Mm. Um, you mentioned you've been following Point Nepean since 2012, so that's 10 years of observations. Yeah. What have you seen? Can we kind of drill down into that a little bit? Oh well, uh, certainly um, the the Moona woodland, which uh, is accommodated uh, by the the dune, the four major four dune along that, is around about well, 400, 500 metres of beach, um, is actually being uh, very seriously eroded. Uh, a lot of trees just collapsing down onto the beach and ultimately disappearing. Uh, and, and is this on the bay side or the ocean side? It's on the bay side, right. yes. So it's just within inside the, the point. Uh, and, um, yeah, so there has been ongoing erosion there and I've done some um, uh, transects recording the profiles of the beach at two, two points near the cattle jetty since about 2016 and uh, recorded that there's been an overall loss of around about a metre of... Um, uh, profile there, so um, and it, it's getting worse. Uh, so, so it begs the question. I mean, the the, the um, uh, plan that I mentioned about before, the Natural Environment Climate Change Adaptation Plan, talks about trans 
transformational adaptation uh, as opposed to just sort of adapting uh, incrementally uh, to, to issues. Uh, and that's ultimately the implication from that is that uh, we might just have to accept that uh, there'll be a loss of those natural systems and uh, new uh, habitats will uh, more of a more marine nature will develop as, as we lose the dunes. So that has implications for the interior of the Point Nepean National Park. And so it'd be an interesting case study to, uh, to actually work through well, what would that look like in, in maybe 15 years' time. Transformational adaptation. Is that just telling us to suck it up? <laughs> uh, well, I wouldn't put it quite like that. But well, yeah, I, guess, I guess that sort of where I'm coming from is, is, is it an acceptance of inevitability? Is that really, that's probably another way better way of putting it but is, is that really what that's it's, all about it's hard not to th put think of it in those terms because uh, it's almost like oh well uh you know we, we there's no point investing in that protection at the moment because it'll we'll probably lose it anyway you know so uh, yeah so that's one of those challenges i guess that we have from a, a, a policy perspective I mentioned at the start of the program you were going to be talking to us about the ver the priority order for uh, infrastructure, cultural values and threatened natural habitat in terms of, you know, those three factors in deciding how we go about uh, dealing with that problem of coastal erosion. Yeah, well, um, and just that, that sort of emerges, I suppose, just from looking at the Point Nepean um, uh, strategic plan and, the, and their maintenance plan. Uh, so areas such as the quarantine station, and those sort of uh, historic sort of sites uh, are, are, are really the key focus for um, protection as opposed to um, just natural dune systems. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting as well. Um, you know, you mentioned the dunes might just completely disappear and it will all become marine area, basically, with sea level rise, if, you know, and the coastal squeeze. Um, I also know you do a lot of work in, in St Kilda around this issue of disappearing into tidal zones in between human infrastructure and, uh, you know, the, the current sea level. Um, what, what do you see happening there in the next decade or so? Oh well, yeah. That's we, again. We need to have a, a big conversation about how do we actually respond to that. So, um, you know, for example, at, uh, where we've got much of the northeastern coast um, of Port Phillip Bay has got a, a seawall at the back of it. Uh, we've got beaches there at the moment, but um, if uh, the uh, sea level continues to rise, which and it has, it's been you know, rising for a couple of millimetres a year over the last twenty odd years or so, uh, then uh, we'll ultimately, you know, in another 20 years, those beaches may be gone, you know, so we need to be thinking about how do we respond to this. One is to put a bigger wall up, uh, but that's the, that's the actual way of action hitting those hard structures uh, that cause a swash that rips the sand away from the beach and takes it back into the into the bay. So, um, uh, you know, I, I would like to think we'll be looking at probably putting in uh, dunes uh, and vegetating those beach areas to create a bit of a buffer against that sort of, um, that wave action. And so there'll be a give and take between the dunes and the bay constantly, but it still would be a better option than uh, just having a, a seawall with the water lapping on the edge of it. And that, of course, is going to require investment 
That's right, and yeah. So whatever happens, we're going to need to actually think about it and invest in it. So. Yeah, and when is when is the tipping point for that too? Like at what time is it considered, you know, time to hit the red button and and get that investment moving? Well, uh, looking at that point in the PN, you know, like um, my observation is that um, the, particularly at the west end of the beach, which seems to be where the most vulnerable point is, uh, there's probably been erosion of that area uh, um, of maybe 15 metres um, since wow. over the last 10 years or so. And uh, if that was allowed to continue for another 10 years, then it may well sort of uh, breach the whole system and then allow the marine waters to flow into the park. Yeah, and that gets to fairly significant consequences. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, it's hard to actually... Uh, Quantify just how far that might spread, but um, because you need to, you know, proper topographical study to sort of see what you know what the water levels uh, would flow to. Yeah, and Neil, you're very well known for spotting these kinds of issues early, and you know, almost be, almost be, we call you Neil Stradamus sometimes <laughs> because you seem to be uh, having a very long view into the future of where things might lead. You know, illustrated by you doing these surveys for the last ten years already. Now we're 10 years on, who do you feel is finally starting to pay attention? Are there any allies or other, other people or organisations that you feel are on the bandwagon with you now? Or is it still something that you need to keep talking about with people to get them educated and up to speed on this issue? Uh, no, I think that, you know, there's obviously uh, many people that are sort of interested and that uh, are careful about what steps they take and but you know I was really heartened to hear Matt Crawley on the on the radio before uh, uh, interesting that Ballerine Catchment Network has uh, been around and, and emerged around about the same time as the Port Phillip Echo Centre and we have very similar goals and you know I can see collaborations uh, we have collaborated with Ballerine Catchment Network in the past and uh, we're, we're going to strengthen that in the, in the very near future. So that, that's sort of a bay-wide sort of collaborations is the, uh, the way we need to go. Uh, but we also need to um, have collaborations across sectors so it's not just the community, not-for-profits uh, working with each other, but we also have corporates and, and government agencies around the table uh, when we're cooking up uh, strategies for the future. We've just been speaking with Neil Blake, our baykeeper, about uh, some great work that he's involved with uh, in, in ways to mitigate coastal erosion. But Neil has been working with Farm, I'm going to throw over to you Farm, about this very, very exciting work that you're leading around training um, community volunteers to, to do some rapid response work to outbreaks of the Northern Pacific Sea Star. Yeah, so we've just been talking about aggregations of spider crabs, which we love, um, but unfortunately we have this pest species in the bay called the Northern Pacific Sea Star that also mass aggregates, uh, usually over the winter months. And um, in the past, Neil, we would always get sent photos and phone calls from community members um, saying, oh, there's just thousands of sea stars washing up on the beach here and I don't know what to do. Um, you know, they they, they were aware that they are pest species, but what do we? What can we do about it? And Parks Victoria and the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning don't really have um, any mandate or any you know any way of responding to these things. And another you know, mass aggregation characteristic is that they might move on real quick overnight as well. So they'll come into the shallows to spawn during the winter months, and then they can just move on quite quickly as well. Um, so. 
we decided to try and set up these teams of volunteer community members all around Port Phillip Bay, kind of like a beach patrol model where different groups uh, look uh, take care of their local patches all around Port Phillip Bay um, and train them up to be able to rapidly respond to these mass aggregations when they come in. And um, yeah, I'm excited to say that uh, training is in full swing at the moment. Uh, we have lots of volunteers signing up and we've done two community webinars online um, to, to teach people the difference between a Northern Pacific sea star and the beautiful native ones because they really look alike and we have a lot of native species in the bay that um, that are very, very precious. And so uh, that's sort of like step one of the community training where people learn to, uh, to identify them. And uh, yeah, step two is uh, also in full swing at the moment with Neil and I getting suitably blown off the beach nearly <laughs> yesterday <laughs> in Karam and after that in Dramana um, doing the on-site training for the uh, volunteer team leaders that have put their hands up to um, to lead the teams when mass aggregations arrive um, and it's been it's been really great we've had lots of responses so far what happened yesterday so talk us through you you met with some community groups uh, were these like beach patrol groups or no so they're well some some people are from beach patrol as well um, they are just people who really care about doing something for the environment and they're very interested in this in this approach of you know being able to help when when the s hits the fan <laughs> kind of thing so they're, they're really from all over the community some of them are students as well that's student uh, students of marine biology um, but really just people who love their local patch and they spend time in the bay and they want to help look after it and so what we did yesterday in the team leader training was um, Neil and I were there on site and we we basically um, taught people how to run one of these activities in a, in a safe way for everyone. Because um, that's obviously of very big importance that, you know, people do this in a safe way and that everybody can be involved and included in some way. And in a way that doesn't actually harm the, the natural environment too and the habitats that uh, the sea stars can be congregating in. Yeah, and they, they can take over so quickly, can't they? I mean, these things are a runaway train in terms of once they get established, they, they pretty much just mow down and eat everything in sight, including themselves if they start to starve. They, they eat their own arms, don't they? They drop arms and then eat oh, yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're insane. They're yeah. incredibly resilient. And one of the things that, uh, that, that Neil's actually added to the citizen science component of it, because we're also collecting data, it's not just about cleaning up. Um, data collection is important in this sense as well, because this is how we learn new things and we we have an opportunity here to have so many people with their eyes on the bay that we would love for them to, you know, tell us the observations. And one of the things that we're very interested in is the type of native mollusks that they are eating, because uh, the department told me that one Pacific sea star can eat one mollusk a day, and there are millions of them out there. So you can imagine that all that food that's supposed to be the bottom of the food chain for our native species and native predators um, is a big dent made in that by northern Pacific sea stars. Yeah, really interesting point too about mollusks because the Northern Pacific sea stars do grow so quickly. They go from spawn to adult size pretty quickly, whereas mollusks, Neil, looking to you here um, as being our, our uh, baykeeper uh, expert on mollusks, particularly around the bay, take a while, particularly the larger species, take a while to reach those larger sizes, don't they? Yeah, they do. And some, uh, <coughs> you know, have sophisticated, more uh, reproductive strategies like the, the jelly egg masses, for example, that protect the eggs, whereas others just um, spawn directly into the water column. But, uh, the, yeah, the, the thing is that um, with Northern Pacific sea stars, 20 million eggs at a time, uh, at his Mother's Day after all, I thought I should mention that. <laughs> <laughs> but the elephant is in the womb. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, yeah, that's correct. And uh, they grow from, from juvenile to adult in one year. So there you go. Uh, Farm and Neil, we're actually at time. What's happening with this work moving ahead and, and how can people get in touch and, and be part of this? Because I know there's a lot of community goodwill out there. Yeah, I'll post a link on a Facebook page. We're, we're facilitating another community training in St Kilda and one in Brighton on next week, Saturday. And, um, yeah, we'll be managing everything through a Facebook, uh, uh, Facebook group as well. So email me at farm at ecocenter.com um, if you want to get involved and uh, yeah check out the link on the radio marinara facebook page soon to uh, learn more about the project and how to get involved brilliant thanks farm no worries thank you neil thanks Brian. thanks so much to kent for panelling for us today uh thanks also to dr elodie kempress and matt crawley it has been a huge show hi this is bron burton thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r's radio marinara a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty broadcast live on triple r from melbourne australia every sunday Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.